Well, once again, thank you so much uh, for having me this week. It's been uh, my joy, my honor, and, and I, I'm already looking forward to the time when I can come back to the Advent. One of my favorite scenes from church history comes from the Baptist preacher John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, he wrote an autobiography called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in that book, Bunyan describes the moment when the truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone sort of came home to him. And he writes this, One day, as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought withal I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he wants my righteousness, for that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, Bunyan says, did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. What I think Bunyan is is narrating there, what he's describing is the third step, if I can put it that way, in Paul's letter to the Romans. We've, We've been talking this week about Romans, and on Monday I described what I think of as the first step in Romans, which is that God's future judgment is announced or predicted. Yesterday, I talked about the second step. God's future judgment has already been enacted in the present. Now God's righteousness has been revealed in the death of Christ. And today, thirdly, I want to talk about the third step, so to speak, in Romans. And this is the step of how God's judgment is received through the work of the Spirit in our lives in the here and now. I think that's what John Bunyan is describing. He's describing how God's judgment that was awaited for years and years in Israel's scriptures and decisively enacted in the cross of Christ, how how that judgment works its way deep into our hearts and lives and becomes existentially gripping, you might say. How the proclamation of the gospel becomes the possession of the gospel. Bunyan, I think, is saying, I know that God predicted his righteousness in the past and he secured it through Jesus' death in the first century, but now I feel it in my own reality. It's become mine. Its truth has finally landed on my heart and in my gut where I know that I know that I know it. How does that happen? How does that experience happen, that third step, and what does it look like? Well, very famously, and I would invite you, if you'd like, to open a pew Bible uh, to Romans chapter 8. Very famously, at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What Paul is describing with those words is not the prediction of righteousness. He's not even describing the achievement of righteousness, which happened around AD 30 on a hill outside Jerusalem. No, what Paul is putting his finger on here is what the Reformed theologian John Murray has called the 
application of redemption. The moment when the accomplished verdict of God's judgment becomes mine. When it's taken into my soul and begins to transform the way I think and feel and act and live in the world. And this happens, Paul says in verse 2, through God's spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. As he says in one of his other letters, 1 Thessalonians, our message of the gospel comes not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. But I want to make this a little more concrete. What does it look like in practice, in real life, when someone takes this verdict of God's Judgment that God has decisively judged sin in Christ's cross rather than judging and condemning sinners like us. What does it look like when somebody takes that into themselves and receives it and believes it and begins to live out that judgment? I want to focus with you this morning on, on three ways of answering that question. And the first one is this. To receive the judgment of God means freedom from fear of God. Freedom from servile fear. Paul pictures our life before and outside of Christ as a life of slavery. He says in Romans 6 that we were slaves to sin. But even more than that, it's a life that involved us in a paralyzing bondage to fear. We trembled before God as if he was our taskmaster. But in Christ, Because God has freely given us Christ as the embodiment of God's saving righteousness, we no longer have to do that. We don't have to cower in fear before God. Listen to how Paul says it. This is Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul's point is that we're now able to to burst into the throne room of God like like a child who barges into a closed door executive meeting, confident that she can hop right up into her dad's lap, even though he's the CEO, because she's his daughter. That's the kind of boldness and audacity. Rowan Williams very Britishly calls it theological cheek. It's the cheek that we can have with God, the chutzpah, that we now have because of the divine judgment we've received. We aren't slaves anymore. We're sons and daughters. And in Christ, as it says in Ephesians, we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. Hebrews says the same thing. I'm I'm quoting here from Eugene Peterson's wonderful paraphrase, Hebrews 10, 19. So, friends, we can now, without hesitation, walk right up to God into the holy place. This is, very, this is the difference between an if-then relationship with God and a because-therefore relationship. In an if-then relationship, God's kindness toward me is conditional on my good behavior. If I keep behaving like an obedient slave, doing everything exactly like I'm told, then God will like me. But the catch, of course, is that in that kind of relationship, I'm always on tenterhooks with God. I never know if today might be the day when I I screw it all up and God sends me away and writes me out of his will. Things are very different in a because-therefore relationship. In this sort of relationship, God's first word to me is not, do this and then I'll accept you. It's exactly the reverse. 
because I've accepted you, because your salvation was secured before you were even born, when Christ became the enactment of God's saving righteousness in his death on the cross, because you're my adopted child, because you're baptized and united to Christ, therefore, you are now free, you're liberated to call God your Father and to live out this new life of the Spirit, full of confidence in God's fatherly goodness towards you. Joy and gratitude are now what fuel our lives. Fear is not what rules our lives anymore. Boldness, confidence, cheek, as Rowan Williams calls it, is what we now have before God. The second thing it means for us to receive God's favorable judgment is that we can now enjoy freedom from worry about our needs. When we lacked confidence about God's favor toward us, when we cowered in fear of God as our judge and our master, we had no assurance that God was on our side. We had no confidence that he would meet our needs. We were huddled like the orphan Jane Eyre. I've been reading Jane Eyre. She huddles in her locked bedroom in the early chapters of that book, fearful that she won't even have the food she needs because her mistress is so cruel. But notice how Paul tries to counteract that. Uh, Toward the end of Romans 8, this is verse 32, one of my favorite verses in all of Paul. He says this, God, who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? There's a formal name for that sort of argument that Paul uses there. It's a fortiori. If the stronger thing is true, then the weaker thing will certainly follow. If God has already done the stronger thing, the harder thing, if God was like Abraham who who trudged up Mount Moriah and was willing to sacrifice even his very own favorite beloved son Isaac, if God has done that, if God has given the life of his own son Jesus Christ for all of us, then there's absolutely zero question about God doing the easier things that we need. For us now to question if God really cares about our needs, for us to doubt that God would supply all of our needs would be ridiculous in light of what he's done already. It would be like a child who's just been given a a vacation at Disney World, questioning whether her parents are able to give her a sandwich for lunch. Of course! Do you really imagine that your parents would invest all the effort and hassle and money required to get you to the Magic Kingdom and fail then to withhold the $10 meal that you need to enjoy your afternoon? Absolutely not. Paul Paul does the same thing earlier in Romans, same kind of argument in Romans 5, verses 8 and 9. He says, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. God gave up Christ to death on our behalf when we were at our absolute worst. Paul uses several words. We were ungodly. We were weak. We were were the least likely candidates for God to do this. And God did it. Now, having already done that, having given up Christ for us, Is there any way that God would fail to give us everything we need subsequently to endure our earthly pilgrimage and make it all the way to our final salvation? The answer is clearly no. God cannot fail to do that. Well, the third and final thing, when we receive God's judgment, 
into our hearts, it means that we now have not only freedom from fear, not only freedom from worry, but freedom for love. As Paul continues to draw out the implications of his arguments as his letter to the Romans unfolds, he, he starts to tease out how this, this confidence that we have, this boldness that we have, this, this freedom that we enjoy before God reshapes our whole way of being human and living in the body of Christ. Look, for example, at what he says in Romans 12, verse 10. He says, love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, in Paul's culture, that would have been enormously countercultural. The whole Greco-Roman world that Paul lived in, that Paul was writing into, was a world that was structured by very fierce and immovable hierarchies. It was a world where people savagely competed with one another for honor. Honor was a limited good in the ancient world. If, if you had more of it, that means I have less of it, and vice versa. And, and right in the middle of that competition, Paul says, once you realize that God's righteousness is yours in Christ, once you've, once you've taken that into yourself, once you've realized that God is favorable toward you, then you can just opt out of that rat race of competition for honor. Instead of competing with your neighbor to try to steal as much of his honor as you can for you, you can actually compete with your neighbor now in giving honor. You can love your neighbor with the very same love that led Christ to give up his life. Listen how Paul puts it in Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. If God has delivered his righteousness to us, if God has judged our sin in Christ and we've received that verdict of no condemnation, then we are free to love in a way that we've never been able to before. We're free to outdo one another in showing honor. We're free to count ourselves less and to go after others in love. If God has accepted us, if God has declared us righteous, then we no longer have to go chasing after honor. If we've received this free justification in Christ, we no longer have to worry about securing our own identity or our future or our good name. And we no longer have to fear God. We no longer have to fear any lack. And that means we're liberated to give ourselves away. I love that verse in 2 Corinthians 8 when Paul describes the Corinthians as those who begged him earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. They were radically free, and they could beg Paul that they might give their resources away to the poor saints in Jerusalem. I remember a night a few years ago, um, I was sitting across the kitchen table from a, a dear friend, a very godly woman in the church that I belong to. And and this is a woman who had suffered a lot, uh, not only from 
uh, clinical depression herself, but her children had been through uh, hell, and she was consumed with anxiety for them. And I was sitting with her at that table that night because for the first time in my life, I was facing a struggle that I really genuinely didn't know the way out of. Uh, The future just looked completely bleak. And of all the things my friend said to me that night, and there were a lot of wonderful things she said, but the one thing I come back to over and over again, the one thing that I remember is she said to me, Wesley, God is for you. God's for you. And she's borrowing that, of course, from Romans 8, from our chapter today. Paul says in verse 31, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And those words that night landed on me like they hadn't quite in that way before. And I couldn't quite believe they were true. Surely it'd be more accurate to say that God was mildly frustrated with me. That God wanted to see me buck up and get my act together. That God was reserving judgment about me until he saw me prove myself for a few weeks. No, my friend told me. God was unreservedly, totally, completely for me in Christ. And that meant freedom. Freedom from fear. Freedom from fear of God. Freedom from worry about my future. Freedom from worry about my needs. Freedom to love. Freedom to give myself away. I felt like those words from John Bunyan. He wrote that when he received God's judgment in Christ, now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.